Susan Block is the Chief Executive Officer of the Early Learning Coalition of Southwest Florida. Susan has a strong background in early learning as a teacher, coach, and mentor to providers, an administrator of children's programs, and as an advocate for early learning policy and systems. She holds a Master of Education in Early Childhood Education from the State University of New York at Buffalo. Susan views early learning as a key strategy for strengthening children, their families, and communities. Since early learning is foundational for both educational achievement and economic success, she believes that ensuring that all children are prepared for school should be a top priority for all communities. Since moving to Southwest Florida, Susan has been active in Kiwanis, Future Makers, and Future Ready Collier, where she is inspired by like-minded community partners who share her interest in building strong communities. On a statewide basis, Susan serves as a leader for the Association of Early Learning Coalitions toward improving the statewide infrastructure in support of young children and their families. Susan aspires to see all children succeed entering into school and throughout their lives. Susan, it is so good to have you with me here today for a conversation. Thanks, Tessa. So glad to be here. Good. I'm so happy that you were able to join us. Um, I wanted to kind of just start because I always think it's interesting to sort of hear about career pathways, you know, given the work that we do. So how did you get to be in the position that you're in today? Well, I knew growing up I was going to be a teacher. And as a young adult, I, I worked actually with all different age groups from little ones through teenagers and came to a conclusion that I liked the little ones the best. <laughs> and at the time, uh, I had an opportunity to go into early learning. And that's where I started. Um, my background is in early learning. I have a, a bachelor's degree in elementary education with a specialty in early learning and a master's degree in the same. And in spite of the fact that my major supervisor said, why do you want to go into early learning? It's babysitting. I was pretty stubborn. So I started as a teacher in childcare. I worked for several years and then started to have a family of my own and interwoven in that young family of mine was me going into a director's position at a childcare center and then later um, going out I thought I was going to go back to school for a while, which I did. I did some some graduate work and uh, ended up in working in quality across the community for childcare uh, accreditation work in particular. I was living up in Buffalo, New York, where I'm from. And uh, I had an opportunity to uh, to work within the child care resource and referral agency up in Western New York doing some early literacy work and some grants work. And long, long and short of it was, I became the executive director there and served there for about four years. And when I moved down to Florida, this position seemed uniquely fitting for my background. And it has been a, a big leap, a big change from New York to, to Florida, but here I am. All right. So there's a lot there to unpack and hopefully we'll get to some of it. But I, I first of all, I want to just take note of the fact that you said that that you, your one advisor told you that they thought it was babysitting. I've heard that before. And I think hopefully today we can kind of talk about why it's not babysitting, because uh, that is not what it is. Anything but. And if you want to rile up uh, 
any one of us early learning professionals just say babysitting, even sometimes when people use the term daycare instead of childcare, it still, you know, makes me bristle, but I've kind of gotten used to that's what's known in the community. So I just need to educate. That's all. Yeah, we all we all need to do more of that. We need to understand it so that we can be better advocates for it. So along those lines, explain uh, to me what the Early, Early Learning Coalition does. The Early Learning Coalition was um, is a not-for-profit, but it's unlike most not-for-profits because we have very close ties to the state of Florida. That's where the majority of our funding comes from. And we administer two of the large early learning grants for the state, the child care subsidy program called School Readiness. This is where we help our at-risk and our income-eligible families to have um, support to get into child care funding, to get into child care. And our voluntary pre-kindergarten program, which in Florida, every four-year-old has access to free pre-kindergarten. And uh, so our agency works with the providers. We contact with the providers, make sure that they're following the rules of the respective programs. And we work to help them to improve their quality. And we work with our families, of course, to help them find those quality programs so that they can go to work and or they can go to school to improve their position. All right, so so what is quality childcare? Wow, there are some who say that's a very subjective um, term. Uh, there are a number of different ways that one can measure quality. One is the quality of the exchange between the adults in the classroom and the children that, I'm gonna say she because largely it's a female driven profession. Um, it's about the environment that's created. It's about intentional design of learning. It's about how we involve families in the decision-making of young children. It is about following learning standards that are set by the state. And it is about some outcomes and some program measures as well, so that we can say in a very objective way, this is a high quality program. This is a program or this versus this a program that's emerging in its quality, that's learning how to get better. All right. So, so with with that in mind and you're you're talking about quality and there's this voluntary pre-kindergarten you know program why is early childhood education important well it's foundational if there's one word it's foundational to everything else that happens in the pathway of an individual's education and in a career pathway our ability to be literate members of our community is essential. What are we doing here today, Tessa? You and I are talking. I'm listening to you. I'm processing your questions, and I'm and I'm answering to you. That ability to communicate, not just verbally, but in a written form, to read and to write, those forms of expression form the foundation. And it's in early learning, early childhood, that we have the experiences that help us to understand that an alphabet makes words and words make sentences and sentences have meaning. So if I need something or I wanna express something, I put it in that framework. So there's a lot of pre-literacy and pre-academic work that goes on in early learning, Equal, equally important. I might even say more important is the social emotional supports that young children get when they are in group care 
They learn to take turns. They learn to listen and follow directions. They learn how to express themselves when they're angry. So when you think about a two-year-old who's angry, two-year-olds are known for their biting. They're not known for their great language. But by the time they're four, they should be learning how to take that, mm, that impulse to want to bite because I'm really mad because you took my toy and convert it into something that says, I was using that. Even that's mine becomes an important part of expression. All of that is foundational to get ready for kindergarten. If a child's ready for kindergarten, if they've had sufficient exposure to language, they've had sufficient supports in developing the kinds of social and emotional skills that they need to be separate from their families and to, to do well in a group setting, then they're going to be way more likely to be on par where they should be at third grade as readers. And the reason why we mark third grade reading level is that it points to the likelihood of high school graduation. And from high school graduation, of course, it's a prerequisite to go into the workforce, to go to a technology college, to go into the military, and of course, to go to college. So what starts when I'm two is gonna have a huge impact on my life at 20 and beyond. I'm gonna be a far better uh, citizen in our society if I can take care of myself. And of course, taking care of myself has to do with my ability to work. Yeah, so that, you know, that's a lot. And I think, you know, dismissing it as daycare or babysitting really doesn't speak to the value that you just described. And I know, you know, Future Makers is very focused on developing a talent pipeline and supporting the workforce. And it sounds to me like you're sort of describing one of the key solutions to what we hear employers say is missing a lot of times from the workforce. These foundational skills, soft skills, the ability to communicate effectively, the ability to work as a team, things like that. It sounds like, I mean, is it accurate to say that that's starting then in early childhood education? Absolutely. All right. Absolutely. So, so, um, so are there other ways that you see that uh, early childhood education is, is related to workforce? Well, that, that goes to the second. The, the first piece I, I described the importance of early learning as foundational for education, and I kind of touched a little bit on workforce, but there are really two key pieces that make early learning so important. It's about our education and it's about the economy. The childcare providers themselves are part of an economic system in Florida. Back in the early 2000s, the Children's uh, Forum of Florida did a study on the impact of childcare on the economy. And they looked at it from a standpoint of childcare programs are employers themselves. They're part of this intricate system of small businesses that are buying supplies, that are offering salary, in some instances, benefits, um, and are, so they are employers themselves. Childcare providers support those who go to work, those who go to school, without childcare, uh, the solutions are, are much more limited for families who are looking to, to go to work. And of course, then that prep for school, ultimately when a, when a, a child gets that foundational piece and becomes an adult that's able to uh, go out and work and contribute, 
that too is going to be a supporting part of the economy. Without childcare, the economy falls flat. Yeah, that that reminds me of a few years ago, I was at the FPL, an, an economic development seminar um, on the other coast of Florida that FPL put on and they had site selectors there, you know, the the people who are charged with helping large companies relocate and and a number of other things. And they actually said that one of the key things that they look at is early childhood education in the communities where they're where they're exploring potential relocation. So it it makes a ton of sense. It does. It absolutely does. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot in there about, you know, that it is it is voluntary to do pre-K and um, you talked about quality. And I'm sure that there are a number of other issues like transportation and just awareness and, you know, just people not really understanding or not being able to access childcare for whatever reason. I'm curious sort of what has the impact of COVID been on, uh, you know, the work that you're doing and that the providers that you're working with are doing? Well, like, like we're a good company here. When I say this, we had to pivot everyone had to pivot. I think if I had a nickel for every time I've heard the word pivot, I'd, I'd be in good shape right now. Yeah. We've, we've had to initiate change a whole lot more quickly than any of us is really comfortable with. So our providers had to all of a sudden figure out how they were going to meet CDC guidelines. And we internally here had to figure out how we were going to continue to support those providers you think about it back in March, children went to a spring vacation that became a very extended spring break and then ultimately turned into online learning. But our little ones, they, they can't do that kind of distance learning and parents needed childcare. Um, initially, when our providers shut their doors briefly, they had to figure out all these component parts of how to keep their environment uh, safe enough so that children uh, wouldn't get COVID. All that adaptation that took place, where were they gonna get personal protective equipment as everyone in the world was scrambling to get masks and cleaning supplies. And here our, our childcare providers are always cleaning and sanitizing their environment, but now we take it up to a whole different level. Um, our team here went to telework in mid-March. And fortunately for us, we have a statewide database that allows us to continue to provide childcare referrals. It allowed us to continue to um, support families in, in the enrollment process in childcare. And it allowed us most importantly to keep paying our providers so that they could stay afloat. We immediately initiated communications through Zoom, like, like many uh, town hall meetings and lots of uh, phone calling to stay connected to both our providers and our families. Probably the biggest challenge for us, and it continues to be a challenge as the levels of COVID uh, vary so much, is getting out and doing our in-person monitoring, the work that we do to make sure that our providers are following the rules of contact and that children are healthy and safe it's very hard to send your own staff out into the community. Um, first of all, uh, many of our providers aren't allowing 
parents to come into their program. They, they say goodbye to their children at the door these days. Um, and, and, you know, we don't want to be part of that community spread to a provider either. It's created quite a conundrum, but that's a part of our work. That's part of how we assure quality. And actually it's very high stakes because some of the work that we do relates to how much funding providers get. And we certainly don't want to disturb that. So it was hard and it continues to be hard. Do you, are, so can you maybe like, are, are parents looking for, for childcare right now? Are you, I mean, how, how is it going? What are some of the differences? Are there any differences that you're seeing in terms of, of people signing up, of their concerns? Well, um, people are starting to return to care. Um, when we would ask providers what their enrollment was like during the summer, it was very low in the 25 to 30% of those children that were enrolled were attending. And as of November, when we surveyed our providers, uh, on average, probably about 65 to 75% of the families were attending. This is versus probably 90% uh, in, a, in a usual. So, you know, some of our issues, the, the uh, childcare is, is run on a very tight budget. Um, the reimbursement that we are able to provide providers is calculated on a formula that is less than what private providers uh, receive. And so some of our old problems have gotten worse. They've gotten more magnified. And certainly this last couple of months now as supports from the state have been, have changed to going back to pre-pandemic rules, um, we're gonna see what happens. Uh, I'm hopeful that perhaps the state will direct more resources to our providers to keep them afloat. Uh, the, the biggest threat right now, Tessa, is Providers are, are telling me that they are starting to get back to normal. And we're very fortunate here. We've received an extra shot of money to, to pull families from the wait list. So those who've been waiting for subsidy, or waiting for child care support are able to get enrolled in, in the program. But if there's no spaces, then they're gonna be stuck in this uh, situation where they, they have support for child care, but they can't access it. And our providers who may want to expand their childcare are having challenges with staffing, which is, again, it's a, a usual problem for early learning. It doesn't get a lot of respect and um, it doesn't pay incredibly well. And so those things have, have gotten harder in, in the last year. So you that's an interesting, an interesting point. Are you saying that when you're talking about staffing, you're talking about teachers, right? Early childhood educators. Mm -hmm. um, are they are they not paid as well for early childhood education as they are maybe in a K through 12 system? Definitely not. So, um, so the pay for a teacher is usually considered not enough, right? We we know teachers are valuable, and and they every especially now during the pandemic, we've we've you know, especially parents have seen like just how hard it is to be a teacher, right? But but what you're saying, it sounds like what you're saying is early childhood educators get paid even less than a K through 12 teacher. Some of our early childhood educators actually work at or below the federal poverty level, like the children that they serve. 
So we have this incredibly important uh, educate part of the education system that's really not even getting paid at the same rate as what a teacher in K through 12 would be paid. So what do you think the disconnect is there? Well, I, I think you'd have to go back historically. You know, the first childcare came about in World War II. Rosie the Riveter was at work. Someone had to care for children. Yeah. And there have been various efforts at the federal level to create a nationwide system. Um, there was actually a bill on President Nixon's desk and uh, he was dissuaded from, from signing it. And that was the last major, um, that's, how, that's how, a time where we came close to a, a more systematic approach to childcare. And by systematic, I mean regular funding, truly. School teachers at the district level may not be paid, and I know they're not paid what they're worth, certainly not during these pandemic times as they've had to stretch and do all sorts of different uh, take on different roles and responsibilities. Um, but there's regular funding. There's a base student allocation that comes in at the district level. It's formulaic and it may change a little bit here and there, um, but it's it's reliable and it's something that you, you have to have reliable income in order to build a system. Um, our, 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 excuse me, our, um, our system is not regularly funded. And over some time, as, as we become more knowledgeable about the importance of early learning, the ability to make this investment early on has been hard to, to do. Where do you take the money from to get there? In, in our state system, early learning is in the same uh, money in the same place under education as K-12 and higher education. And there's not necessarily more money to be had. So where do you take it from to get to invest in early learning? And so it's taken a long time and we're just starting to hear more and more people understand how foundational early learning is and how it will change their trajectory of K-12 and higher education if we invest early, but it's about where to find that funding on a regular basis. And, and it's hard. Government can't be all things to all people. And yet that's, we rely on that system. Much, much of us rely on that system for K-12 education. Um, one might argue perhaps a system that's like higher ed would serve early learning. Hmm. That's interesting. So can you maybe, do you have a sense of what uh, children who do not participate in early childhood education or um, in uh, pre-kindergarten of what what some of the challenges that they face are going into kindergarten then? Well, just even learning about group care, learning, you know, I, I talked a little bit about social emotional skills. Um, how do you solve problems if you've never had any experience as a five-year-old working with strangers literally strangers to resolve your issues. I, um, I often tell a story about my son who went to kindergarten, forgot his lunchbox and came home all excited that he had negotiated the whole thing with his teacher, bought his lunch and had his lunch packed for the next day because he knew how to talk to her. He went to the teacher, he said, I have a problem. Not that my mother left my lunchbox, but I have a problem, he said. 
and he figured it out and he was he came home he was so excited he could have been crying and and difficult to get to it, it could have been a whole different scenario and that's the difference between children who have those experiences and children who don't and of course then the exposure to to language and and preparedness for academic learning is essential children who don't have those experiences going in they're behind at the beginning of the of, of their k-12 education and it's very very hard for them to catch up i won't say never but remediation is incredibly difficult i imagine even things like learning to stand in line or to raise your hand or to sit in your seat those things could easily begin to dominate a day at school if you if a child is not familiar with those and it seems to me just based on my own experience with my own children that there is i mean the kindergarten teachers do do teach those things but it's obviously the rigor of the academic side is obviously what everyone is expecting the focus to be on but i could see how that could become a big issue if if a child just isn't used to even those little things yet is that over the years over the years in conversation with kindergarten teachers what's most important for children to be ready and they they want children to be able to to um have that self-control that they need not to turn and smack somebody who's edging them out in, in line and not to cry when when they're frustrated and rather just express themselves they they're there their best training is really with the academic skills that children come prepared um it makes a teacher's life that much easier and, and teachers will tell you i can tell i can spot a mile away the child who went to pre-k versus the child who didn't and the and the data here in our state bears that out the children who go through our vpk program um are and scoring better on their kindergarten readiness screener they're they're much more ready than their peers who haven't gone. Yeah. So with all that in mind, you know, if you could tell families, you know, you know, uh, the, the key things you would want them to know about early childhood education as they are starting to look or, or even thinking about having a family, you know, what would you, what would you tell them? I would tell them, um, well, first I would tell families, as, as I'm sitting here talking about the importance of early learning, um, I would tell them how important they are to their child's lifetime education and that they are their child's number one advocate. And it's important for them to find high quality early learning programs and childcare for them to, to do their work if that's the situation that they're in, but that they need to understand their incredibly important role in preparing children for a lifetime of learning and ultimately to be um, earners. Uh, from learners to earners, I think, is one of the expressions that's used. Um, they are reading to children. They are talking with children. They are listening to children, giving them experiences, making them feel safe and secure, feeding them, clothing them, housing them, you know, meeting all their basic needs. And then some, when a child comes to school loved, uh, that becomes most important. And when your time comes that you need childcare, look carefully do your homework uh, the coalition you can come to us we can give you a listing a child care resource and referral agency can give you a listing of uh, the, the providers who serve the children of the ages that you 
uh, are looking for for care or education and or education for um, and that's there's no charge for that um, and we can give you a checklist of things that you should look for when you when you go and you look at a program um, mostly i will tell you follow your gut instinct if you go into a program and, and you're cringing uh, at, at an exchange that you observe listen to your instincts and more often than not are, are are telling you something that you you need to pay attention to. Um, I'd also want families to know that our providers right now are doing everything that they possibly can to keep these environments safe and healthy for our little ones, and they're doing they're doing a remarkable job. Yeah. So, you know, are there are there opportunities for providers uh, that you're aware of? to increase their quality if they are struggling um, to meet some of those quality standards? We work with our providers. Uh, the, the, the coalition here does a, what we call a quality rating and improvement system. And this is a voluntary piece of work that providers take on. Um, and there's a set of standards that we use to, uh, to, to measure the, the quality that we observe in a in a provider's um, environment, and um, we can give them training. There's a, a good amount of training that comes out of our coalition. And the state of Florida has developed um, some really good online tools uh, with University of Florida's Lassinger Center. Um, there's 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 a lot of resources out there. So providers uh, who who contract with us know those things because we're in regular touch with them, and we send them a lot of information about what's available. Um, it's, it's something that you have to really want. And nowadays, if you're providing school readiness, the better your quality, the more that you're going to get paid for the children that you care for. Yeah. And heading into the session, there's a proposal, a bill that would have this similar practice happening in our BPK programs. Ah. So there's a, a, a bit of incentive for, for doing the work. Yeah. Well, um, that's positive because, you know, I do think that the more we can support and the more we can draw sort of the attention of providers to increasing their quality, I think the better off those providers will be as well. Um, and also, you know, we're always making, I know you're always making efforts to help parents understand quality. And if the demand is for quality, then I think it's a win-win, right? Yes. Yes. High quality programs have a much stronger positive impact on children and yeah. in, in their their readiness path. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm really curious since um, businesses need the early uh, learning system to work and to work well and to have space. Uh, what do you what do you think is the most important thing you would want businesses to know or what role could they play in in supporting this work? Well, there are some things that um, businesses can do directly to support families, uh, family-friendly uh, policies, and employment policies, flex time, uh, maybe telework if it can be supported depending on the work, perhaps uh, providing an on-site childcare program. And if you're not a large enough employer by yourself to consider that, perhaps put a group together and, uh, and create some, on, uh, some child care that's accessible or, you know, uh, that your employers get preferential treatment for, um, offer child care as, uh, as a benefit or part, part of that as a benefit. Um, mostly, I think 
you know, the hardest part for, for working families is to feel that their employer understands it. You know, even though they may only have uh, 10 sick days a, a year, that a child doesn't know that. And when they get sick on that 11th and 12th day, that you may have to be home as an employee to take care of that child. And if it's a good employee, how, how can you support them? Um, in terms of our providers, some of our providers are not-for-profit providers, and they're looking for supports in terms of their boards of directors. Our providers are always looking for, for donations um, of goods, of skills, of, of books, and certainly of funding. And, and our businesses can speak to the importance of early learning when it comes to speaking with uh, our policymakers. Um, it's really those folks that are driving our economic engine, aside from our child care or in addition to our child care providers who do that, who get the ear of our legislators as, as, as new policy is set and as a new investment is made in our youngest citizens. So it's up to our businesses to really take that on as a, as a passion and to speak to it whenever they have that opportunity. Yeah, and just to echo what you said earlier, it's also an investment in our current workforce too, right? Because they're sure. they're able to to um, to work and to feel secure that their children are getting what they need. I I think um, those are such great such great ideas, and I love the idea of grouping childcare and you know Future Makers is in a position to help you know, work with work with you, Susan, to help uh, businesses find other businesses that might be interested in doing something like that. So I think we've talked about this in the past. I think it's something we're still open to exploring. Um, I also do think, you, you know, you mentioned this idea of businesses advocating. Um, you know, you, you talked about the economic benefits that have been found uh, where childcare exists and meets the needs of the workforce. So I think um, I think that there's a lot to dig into there in terms of, of our ability to help policymakers understand what's needed and um, the value of early childhood education. And you mentioned at least one bill uh, that's being considered right now is uh, with the uh, reimbursement for pre-K based on quality. Is there anything else that you would that you would want us to be aware of from a policy standpoint or that you would want policymakers to know? Um, there are actually a few bills and it's, I, I don't think it's too late now to file bills. So there may, you never know at this point in the year how much more is coming. There is a bill out there to um, require alarms on transportation. Uh, there is another bill that would allow child assessment to occur on the child's native language. Um, the, the bill that I referred to, though, is a bill that had um, been passed through the House last year and stalled. Um, I think it collided with COVID, to tell you the truth. The, you know, the, the writing was on the wall at the end of last year's session, and um, it, was a, it was a big bill. Um, it would put the coalition system and the Office of Early Learning directly under uh, the Department of Education as a division. Um, it would create a higher level of accountability for our voluntary pre-kindergarten programs and potentially a differential payment for that quality like school readiness. Um, there, there are a lot of accountability language in there for those of us who run coalitions as we are the, you know, the, uh, 
the, the ones who care for, for taxpayer dollars and, and very carefully make sure that it gets to our families so that they get the care that they need. So I think as the session comes along, we'll see more, but it's an exciting time um, that early learning is uh, more of the conversation up in Tallahassee, uh, that more and more we hear from legislators about their support for early learning. And I think, you know, at the end of the line, in, in a very difficult budget year, uh, we'll see uh, where early learning uh, lands. And it's my hope that we continue to work on that system and we continue to see more and more resources because of the importance of early learning. If a policymaker needed to, you know, isn't an expert in early learning and needed to learn more, um, where would you recommend they look as they're kind of thinking about policy and some of these things that are being proposed? Well, all, all of the early learning coalitions across the state are, are the resident experts in their, in their uh, communities. Um, United Way of Florida, Children's Movement of Florida, uh, the Florida Association for the Education of Young Children, um, the, the Florida Association of Child Care Management, FACM, I think, is the um, proprietary uh, centers. Um, there are lots of places uh, to look, and, and we're all very happy to speak about how they can work to improve our system. Yeah. Our that's so helpful because, I mean, if you think about it, when you get into an elected office, the, the range of things you need to know is vast. And so I think just that it's such an important reminder that, that policymakers can rely on the people who are on the ground doing this work um, to, to get some information if that's what they need. And that's true for anything that, you know, cradle to career, um, early childhood education, all the way through the adults that are out there right now that don't have a credential that need the skills to fill in-demand jobs and have more have a more sustainable career pathway, not to mention support economic development. So such a great opportunity to remind everyone that if you want to learn more, there are lots of us out there that care and are willing to connect and, and talk about it. Is there anything else you would want to just share with the community that, that we can do to help? Or, you know, if someone feels really passionate about this topic, what where would you point them? What can we do to support you, Susan, and all the providers that are trying to keep this important, important educational service available in our region? Well, I think the, the key here is to reach out. And um, if you ask me, if you call me and you say, I, I have an idea and, and I can't necessarily connect with it, I'll work with you to find somebody who, who does. And Tessa, often you are the recipient of my, hey, I, I spoke to someone or an e-introduction and, and vice versa. Um, it, it's about um, raising the community conversation to a very high level, that it's part of the consciousness for all of us, um, certainly for parents who are dealing with the challenges of young children, it's their everyday challenge. And for those of us who are no longer in a day-to-day -day position to do that and, and have other perspectives, it's up to us to make those connections I think that's been uh, amongst the most gratifying part of being part of the future makers is that um, I may have an idea or I may know somebody who has an idea and I don't have to do it by myself. I have this great community all around me and I have the resources um, in terms of those connections to, to make things happen. So short answer, reach out, um, talk to somebody who's who's got that interest and we will be happy to connect you. Yeah. 
Well, I just want to thank you so much. I always learn a ton when I talk to you. I think um, what you're doing is so important. And I think this conversation just, you know, is the tip of the iceberg of how important this work is. I'm very grateful that you're a future maker um, and that you've helped us really make the case for starting our talent pipeline with early childhood education. And I am very appreciative of your time, Susan. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about my passion and uh, thank you for your good work in, in leading our future makers.